millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Well, it had to be sort of Western because it was out West. It, it uh, was definitely cowboys and Indians, you know. This is songwriter Murray Grindley, described in the 70s as New Zealand's undisputed Jingle King. And this is a track to one of our longest-running and most iconic ads, the great crunchy train robbery. Even when they stopped playing it after the 20 years, every few years they'd roll it out again and put it on for a week. Kia ora, I'm Sonia Yee and you're listening to Eyewitness, a podcast looking at events and moments in history witnessed by the people who were there. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some commercials that immediately take you somewhere else. They keep you watching and sometimes singing along. And the best ones, well, they tell a great story. So in this episode, we're taking a look at how the advertising industry has changed. Now, when the great crunchy train robbery was being made back in 1975, that's 46 years ago now, when Murray wrote the music for it, he was in his mid-twenties and had only been in the industry for a few years. The industry at that time, it hit a turning point. It was sort of like a changing of the guard, you know, they wanted something different. Because, to be honest, I couldn't have done what the old pros did. I wrote songs. As opposed to jingles, you mean? Yeah. And to date, this Auckland songwriter and music producer has worked on thousands of them, including... Welcome to our world. For Toyota, this very catchy LNP ad. He did the music for Dear John. For my girl Shirley, we're going to be married. Dear John, oh how I hate to write. And one that told us exactly what cats want. Now when Murray started his career, he'd just hung up his rock and roll lifestyle where he'd been touring with bands and playing in pubs to, well, making fast turnaround tracks for ads. It was a creative playground. It was the days when we often did the music first, uh, before they did the film, which is very unusual today. So back when he wrote the music for the Crunchy Bar ad, he was approached by the head honcho at an agency called Colenso. chap called uh, Roger McDonnell, the Wellington branch, he, he was the boss of the whole agency, actually, and he flew me down to Wellington. He had written the lyrics, all of them, and I read it through a couple of times. It was a really unusual one. And by unusual, Murray means the song kind of happened there, on the spot. I uh, picked up my guitar, pretty well played the crunchy song straight away. Life's a whole long journey, boys, before you get too old. Don't miss the opportunity to strike a little gold. Out west, folks are you the way to make him stop. 
quickly draw a little crunchy bar and fill them full of chalk. You know, like it's like a spoof on the, the Wild West. And it was a song that told a story. When I'd recorded it about a week later, I sent it to them and, and the next time I heard it was on air with the wonderful film that Tony did. That's Tony Williams, the director, who we'll get to in just a bit. The two best ones I did with Tony was The Crunchy Train Robbery and The Dear John ad. He was always extremely easy to work with, but I did know it was good. The track worked perfectly with with the, the pitches. It was a match made in crunchy bar heaven. But a good jingle serves many functions. It has to catch your attention for a start and in a short space of time. So, Murray, what's your secret? Well, you have to have a good vocabulary of, of songs in your, in your brain. By the time I, I fell into the advertising thing, or, or as they call it in America, the jingle jungle, I had a pretty good vocab of lots of musical styles. And that's a huge help, you know, when you have that, you know, because, boy, you don't want them all to be the same. I mean, you know, otherwise you won't last very long. There were times within advertising where everything kind of shifted more to, like, telling stories and then episodical yeah. commercials, which yeah. were completely new. And also the the songs were big, whereas now you you don't actually hear a song on most ads. You do get the odd one. It's mostly instrumental. But today, there are processes in place and projects go through other sets of hands. The advertising landscape, according to Murray, has changed. Like a Cadbury or whoever uh, would trust the agency um, completely and just say, hey, come on, like you guys are the experts. How much is it going to cost? Well, it's going to cost this. It's not going to be cheap. And uh, off we'd go, whereas today the clients are taking a much bigger role. I mean, like, often I don't even get, get to mix the track these days, you know, because the agency wants to mix it themselves. So I supply them with um, what we call stems, which is every um, instrument and voice on a different track so that it can be put together again. I'm not a huge fan of it, but at the same time, hey, you've got to move with the times. I mean, would you still be like here with your guitar, I'm going to strum a song and, oh, there's a song? Or is it like you have to provide 10 different versions of a song? Oh, and they no. Go, well, mm. well, well, I know that happens, but I won't do that when I refuse to do that. <laughs> you know, because that's silly, you know, because that'll just dilute it, you know. But, yes, that does happen. I've just done this new version of the uh, Kiwi Burger and I worked with all these young people there and, and they were fantastic. You know, like I was old enough to be the granddad. But <laughs> Which brings us to director Tony Williams, whose career spans documentary films as well as commercials. Now it turns out he lives in Kangaroo Valley in New South Wales. So we chatted over Zoom and he says he started out pretty young in the industry. In fact... He was there when the first ever commercial was being made in New Zealand. Oh, I was about 19 or 20, I suppose. It was being made by Pacific Films, and I was on staff as a young trainee at the time. And the ad? It was kind of risque. Well, at the time. For Jockey's Underpants, and I was an assistant on the set. Starring one of New Zealand's foremost actors. Peter Harcourt, the actor, had to walk into a bank. Action. The voice said, what does a, a, a well-dressed man wear under his trousers? 
and his trousers disappear and he's working jockeying on other pants. And cut. And the, the commercial was banned. It was the first one ever made. Can't possibly show a man in his underpants. <laughs> Indeed. But if only they knew then what we know now. If you'd like to listen to a story about jockeys' underwear, you can find one on RNZ podcast, My Heels Are Killing Me, in the episode, The Rise of the Wife Front. Now back to Tony and those early days. So when the commercials came along, it was very, very rough and ready. And everyone sort of like looked down their nose at it a, a bit. They said, oh, well, this is going to just do it like a newsreel shoot. So the lighting was appalling. The direction was pretty bad. It was very rough and ready. And it, it, they looked a bit like a newsreel item rather than the stick commercials you expect to see today. So it seems the industry had a long, long way to go before it got to the crunchy train robbery phase, where pictures and songs told an epic story in 30 seconds, no less. And by the time this opportunity knocked on Tony's door, having learnt the tools of his trade working for production company Pacific Films, well, Tony had already been on a jaunt working in London and LA before returning to New Zealand, again rejoining Pacific Films, until he had a request to go out on his own. So I did. Now, back then, nobody in the industry was freelancing. It just wasn't part of their vocabulary, and work only came through production companies. But someone managed to twist his arm. So Roger McDonnell from Colenso asked me if I would do this ad set on a train. And he said, you can do it, mate. You can do it through your own company. And so the great crunchy train robbery was born. And the initial script had Kenny Rogers in the first edition singing the crunchy jingle on a train while it was being attacked. Kenny and Tony happened to be friends already. That was a bonus for the agency. Except timing didn't work out. Kenny couldn't come to New Zealand, but the agency still wanted to get the ad off the ground, using the same idea and setting, and Tony was quick to inject some new and slightly surreal ideas. I wanted to get this footage of the train being attacked um, by aeroplanes and the Second World War material. And I had a friend in Hollywood. He was editing all of Martin Scorsese's documentaries at the time. And I told him what I wanted, and he said, oh, look, I'm working at Paramount at the moment. I'll see what I can find. And he went into the vault, and he scrounged all those shots of the of the aeroplanes and gunfires and the Nazis and the train being attacked, and um, I, I got it for next to nothing. <laughs> it would have cost a fortune today. So I was very lucky to have that, that friendship. Friends in high places can't hurt, right? But there are so many components that make this ad memorable. The story was bursting at the seams with distinctive characters, a knitting grandmother, some dodgy guys giving each other sideways glances, a sheriff and a priest, and so much suspense. There's also a lot of action taking place. As commercials developed, you had a stock of actors who were intended to be commercial-only actors, people who would go to casting agencies to be in commercials. But back then, we were able to get the cream of downstage cast. We had Bruno Lawrence, Ian Watkins, Jeff Murphy's children. It was a lot of fun. Stuart Devaney, the actor. You couldn't get the guns off the guys, you know, during the tea breaks, the morning tea breaks. They wanted to get their guns on. They were in the characters of cowboys. <laughs> they were practising their fast draws. 
and it was Tony's job to keep all the balls, or should I say, crunchy bars, in the air. Not to mention that it was in a location that wasn't anywhere near the Wild West, but little old Lower Heart, just outside of Wellington. We had an old train carriage out at Gracefield between Lower Heart Point Howard in a sort of a dump yard where it was just a wreck, really, and we used that as our location. Now it's time to get this train moving. It's literally rock and roll time. It was a great spirit on the train. We put tracing paper on the windows and had lighting outside. You wouldn't know it was a freezing cold Wellington night, would you? The hard work was the helpers and assistants who were outside the train with with big uh, lengths of steel hooked onto the carriage to try and make it rock. So every time we were about to have a take, we'd say, rock the train, and these poor guys were out in the middle of the night, in the freezing cold, rocking the train with their crowbars. <laughs> they had the hard job. Was there a fight choreographer um, on board? There was no such thing in those days. We just worked it out amongst ourselves. Bruno was fantastic. Uh, he's a 110% performer. So we just made it up as we went along. It took us so long to shoot because there were so many scenes to do. And it was supposed to be a one-day shoot. When we came out, it was midnight, and we didn't realise it was so late because we'd been living in this false daylight inside the set. It was just like a party. We were having a, a ball. A lot of things were improvised, even though we knew the, roughly what was going to happen. And you know how Tony mentioned the actors were kept late? Well, the shoot went overtime, and so did the budget. So when I started to pay the bills, having not produced my own commercial before, I suddenly realised that I was spending more than I was making. You know, it was, the budget was $10,000 for this extravaganza. I started to write cheques and realised I didn't have enough money in the bank to finish paying the crew. So, I, yeah, I ended up making no money at all and, in fact, an overdraft. But Tony did receive something else as a form of compensation for his time, an unexpected gift. And the agency felt so sorry for me, having done this work, hard work, that Roger came round to my house on a Saturday morning and opened his boot and brought out a motormile. He said, oh, a little token of our thanks. I'm sure Tony's house sported the best berm on the block after that. But why a motormower? I've got no idea other than they had the account for Massport and I, I suppose they had a spare one. And I'd always said I'm sick of pushing a hand mower. So, <laughs> there you go. But the biggest reward was yet to come. Exposure. Global exposure. Basically, this ad went gangbusters. You know, though I'd made no money from it, it was a calling card and that kicked off a career, you know. And, you know, the ad became internationally famous. It was shown on the late night Johnny Carson's show and in England, one of the late night television shows screened it. Now, the Crunchy Bar ad became iconic. So was that a surprise to Tony? If I'd been paid royalties, I could have retired many years ago. <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah, it surprised me that it ran so long, but it was immensely popular. And the funny thing is we, we made a sequel... Uh, Jeff Dixon from Silver Screen made a sequel, and then I also made a sequel, and none of them worked uh, as well as the original. So they they ran the sequels for a short period, and then they went back to the train robbery because that was the commercial that everyone loved and remembered. 
I think it's the storyline. It's the, the way it develops and builds and goes into sur- surreal and then ends up with that sort of punchline at the end. The funny thing is when I moved to Australia in 1980, I took, it was the first ad on my show reel and we went to an advertising agency and we showed the reel. And the first thing that came up was the country train robbery. And this, the ad agency looked at us and said, don't think you can pull the uh, hood over our eyes. We know that this ad was made in America. It's not a New Zealand ad at all. And get out of here. You know, who do you think you are? <laughs> and I bet they regret that to this day. <laughs> Won lots of gold awards and so forth. I think if we were doing it today, it would have been visually more sophisticated. Like Murray, Tony's experience of the advertising industry today is vastly different from the free reign, no holds barred approach of the past. Today, agencies are competing with digital companies. There's also more competition. Film and advertising skills are producing creatives who can work across a whole gamut, if required. Today, it's far more demanding. I hated making commercials when I came to Australia because you end up with a team of of young people uh, breathing down your neck and looking over your shoulder and wanting to change everything you do and no one trusts each other and, and you have to go to meetings with the client before the commercial begins shooting and you have to go through every single shot you're going to take so there's no room for spontaneity no room for improvisation you have to lock down every second and half second of what's going to appear and what's going to be done and then you get a team of 20 people watching what you're doing and and uh, kicking up a fuss if you deviate from the original plan. If you have that freedom to allow it to find its own way, then you're going to get a much better product. That's the way the creative process works. It develops. A bit of paper isn't the final product. So I don't think you could make an ad like that today in in the same sort of way. Uh, All the spontaneity would be lost. That was director Tony Williams, and you also heard songwriter Murray Grinley. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Yee. The sound engineer was Phil Benge, and if you'd like to listen to this episode again or others from the series, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness. You can also find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.